Welcome to Historic Knoxville News, the podcast series based on readings from old Knoxville newspapers and other documents. I'm Melissa Brenneman, Robbie Griffith is the reader, and Knox County historian Steve Cotton is our interpretive guide. The newspaper of April 9, 1897, carried many pages about the great Gay Street fire that happened the day before. The following has been assembled and condensed from that issue. Loss exceeds one million. The Knoxville Daily Journal, April 9, 1897. A scene that baffles graphic description was presented in the business center of the city of Knoxville yesterday morning. As the gray mists of the dawn were about to appear in the eastern horizon, the sky was illuminated by the lurid light coming from the flames enshrouding the Hotel Knox on Gay Street between Union and Commerce Street. For many squares, in fact, for many miles around, the rapidly growing fire could be seen, and within half an hour after it had begun, Gay Street was thronged with a mighty host of spectators. The fire was more than is implied in the term. It was a conflagration the like of which has never before been seen in the city, and perhaps never before in any Tennessee city. It did untold damage, the greatest to be lamented of which was the unquestioned loss of life. Over one million dollars went up in flames, and that loss was secured by but two-thirds of the amount in insurance. For two blocks on Gay Street, there is but a scene of devastation. There now lie in ashes ten of the handsomest buildings ever erected in the city of Knoxville. It was indeed a terrible blow from which the city of Knoxville will not soon recover. yet a question as to the number of lives lost in the Hotel Knox, but it is generally conceded, and reasonably so, that more than one guest of the hotel perished in the flames. The occupants who escaped a terrible death by jumping or by being rescued or otherwise gaining exit from the building report that numbers of persons were seen lying prostrate in the corridors of the hotel, having been suffocated by the smoke, and that their chances for getting out of the fire trap were decidedly questionable. Soon after the fire was discovered and the fire department was getting in its work, a journal man called upon the manager, John Northington, and interrogated him concerning the number of guests in the hotel and his opinion as to the number who succeeded in finding egress from the burning building. Mr. Northington replied that there were at least 53 lodgers in the house and that he could safely say that at least half a dozen of these perished in the flames. He also claimed that it was impossible for him to rescue the hotel register from the office while making his flight, and that there was no record by means of which the names of the guests, whoever they might be, might be made known. As a matter of course, all the local lodgers who were in the building were known to their friends outside, and investigation reveals the fact that not a single one of these failed to escape, although several had most miraculous escapes and in saving their lives suffered terrible physical injuries by jumping. first cries of fire rang out upon the early morning air, and at 3.50 o'clock the alarm was announced at the fire department station at the City Hall of Market Square. Being but a block from the scene of the fire, the department lost but little time in reaching it. It was, however, at least 20 minutes later before a stream of water was put upon the burning building. A slight southwesterly wind was blowing, and it was therefore thought that there was little danger of the adjacent buildings catching fire. 
but grave fears were entertained for the west side of Gay Street and Market Square as huge balls of fire fell like snowflakes upon the roofs and woodwork of the surrounding buildings. The fire was first discovered by John Davis, a veteran colored porter who has been identified with Knoxville hotels from time immemorial. Davis was comfortably seated in the office of the hotel, having but a few moments previous thereto finished his customary duties of cleaning out the office and lobby. He detected the odor of smoke and was about to begin an investigation when merchant policeman Gowan entered the hotel door. Davis observed through the transom between the hotel office and the McNulty Grocery Company's place of business a blaze. With presence of mind, he rushed to the rear of the building and to his horror found that the old tanks which were near the elevator shaft in the grocery store were a mass of flames. His next thought was of the guests in the hotel whose destiny was in his hands and quick as a flash he mounted the stairway and was en route to the floor above. As he ascended the steps, he called to Officer Gowan to telephone the fire department that the Hotel Knox was on fire. Mr. Gowan at once took in the situation and lost no time in summoning the brigade of firefighters. Meanwhile, John Davis ran through the halls with the speed of the winds, shouting the dread words, Fire! Fire! and breaking open the doors of the rooms in which the guests were located. He made an attempt to ascend to the third floor and did succeed in making a partial round on that floor, but his progress was checked by the fast accumulating smoke, the crackling of timbers, and the glaring flame of fire. He observed, however, that the tongue of the flame had ascended the elevator shaft from the grocery store and that the cheaply constructed building, together with its furnishing, was proving an easy prey to the fire. As Davis descended again to the office, he continued his cries of warning to the guests and was met on the first floor by manager Northington, who was one of the first to succeed in getting out. He said he could easily distinguish exclamations characteristic of people in such a delirium under such circumstances. He said the cries were heart-rending, that he would have rather died than to be compelled to listen to them. As Davis and manager Northington left the hotel, others followed them, but it was an impossibility for all to escape by means of the same stairway that entered from the front of the building. A few minutes after the fire alarm was called out by the porter, the smoke was too dense for anyone to see any distance. The building was only three stories high in front, the south side adjoining the old Third National Bank building, the top of which was only a story and a half below the third story of the Knox. This gave a means of escape to those on the top floor, and had it been discovered in time, all the inmates would probably have escaped. Several mattresses were thrown out on the roof of the bank building by the imprisoned ones, and the work of saving themselves was begun. W. H. Kephart was the first to bring this idea into action, and in a few moments half a dozen mattresses were on the roof and the inmates began to leap for their lives. It was indeed a dangerous leap which nothing could make a man attempt except a burning building behind him. Kephart made a rope of sheets tied together, and by the time he was ready to descend, a number had gathered in his room. Knowing that it was a dangerous leap and that he would probably break his rope, Kephart listened to the pleadings of those who had gathered around him and assisted two or three to the top of the building. In the meantime, others had jumped from the windows onto the roof. Kephart lost his rope and, as a last resort, was compelled to jump to the roof below. Two young railroad men escaped by sliding down the guttering at the rear of the building, making the entire distance of four stories without a scratch. 
They had been cut off from the front, and they were forced due to desperate circumstances. Their nerve, coupled with the danger of the situation, saved their lives, it being one of the most miraculous escapes made from the building. Mr. Gibson, bookkeeper for the Armor Packing Company, and Mr. Davis, a traveling salesman for Macmillan, Hazen & Company, both had narrow escapes. They were in the northeast room of the building, and before they knew of the fire, they were cut off, both from the stairway and the bank building. They rushed to the front window and yelled for a ladder. At the same time, they spied some ropes that had been used by painters the day previous in doing some work on the building. They secured the ropes and made one long enough to reach the ground, and in this manner made good their escape, neither being hurt other than blistered hands from sliding down the rope. Flames spread rapidly, and by 4.20 o'clock, the entire roof and third story of the hotel building were emitting a mass of flames. Half an hour later, the structure was a mass of ruins. It had been completely gutted, and every wall had fallen to the ground, thereby leaving what but an hour before had been a magnificent building, now but a desolate spot of a worthless pile of brick and mortar. From the hotel building, the flames passed north to the Briscoe Block, in which was located the wholesale dry goods and notions business of Daniel Briscoe Sons and Company, also that of the Marble City Hat Company, S.H. George and Company, and Murphy and Robinson. Scarcely had the flames fairly begun to get in their terrible work on this building than another tongue leaped out from the hotel to the Sturkey Brothers Furniture Store building structure, which is owned by Colonel C. M. McGee. With simultaneous swiftness, these two buildings burned to the ground and in less time than it can be imagined were brought from their condition as stately structures to the debris fit only for the dumping ground. Few goods were rescued by either of these firms, and their stocks, as well as the buildings, are total losses. Being criterions in their respective businesses, as they were, their stocks were naturally of a superior kind, and few wholesale concerns in this section of this domain could make such elaborate displays as did these firms. Fortunately, no parties were sleeping in any of these buildings other than the hotel, and no lives were lost by reason of the fire spreading to these structures. From the Sturkey building, the fire was quickly communicated to that of S.B. Newman and Company, thence to Cullen and Newman and J.C. Cullen, thence to M.L. Ross and Company, thence to the largest and perhaps the most costly structure in the block, that of W.W. Woodruff and Company, thence to the shoe house of Arnold Henniger Doyle and Company, where the southern progress of the fire was checked. In the other direction, traveling from the Briscoe block, the fire proceeded to the extensive dry goods establishment of A.P. Lar, and then to the Macmillan building, which structure was until recently occupied by the Knoxville Trunk and Harness Company. The fact that the building was vacant and that a double wall existed between it and that of the Shields Brothers building is believed to be the means by which the fire was checked from continuing further north and devastating other valuable property. The same reason relative to double walls between the building of Sanford, Chamberlain, and Albers and Arnold, Henniger, Doyle & Company's shoe house is a sign for the stoppage of the progress of the fire in the southern direction. Mr. Leon Beaver, the architect, said in regard to this fact, We are just now passing through a sad and fearful experience. 
Permit me in this connection and in all kindness to suggest that now is the time to agitate for a strong building ordinance and to see that it be enforced. Party walls have been quite a factor in spreading the fire today, and they should be allowed under no circumstances whatever. Take as an example the building of Sanford, Chamberlain, and Albers, and the old trunk company building, both of which have double walls, and I am satisfied that is what stopped the fire there. I have been told by a member of the city council today that he expects to draw up such a building ordinance as suggested above and present it to the city council at its next meeting and vigorously push it to a successful passage. Knoxville is a city that demands rigid building laws. And now that we have had this terrible lesson to teach us the necessity of same, we should see to it that a matter of grave importance shall no longer be neglected. After the fire had reached the Arnold Henniger Doyle & Company building, it leaped across the alley and was seen in the livery stable of Macmillan and Meek. The roof of the stable proved easy prey for the flames, and the hay in the loft ignited with lightning rapidity. All the horses and vehicles were removed from the building, and none were lost in the flames. The greatest loss sustained by Macmillan and Meek was the damage to the building and the loss of feed, and a few incidental losses. The progress of the fire in the stable was checked before the building was doomed to destruction. The residences along State Street were scorched more or less by the fire, but beyond this no further damage was done on that thoroughfare. Had State Street been thickly built up in the rear of the burned district, there is but little doubt that the fire would have been as disastrous there as on Gay Street. Every available piece of fire apparatus, together with every foot of hose in the city, was employed in fighting the fire, and long before it had gained too great headway were these put in operation. It was evident, however, that the fire laddies of Knoxville were not equal to the occasion, and on advice of Chief James McIntosh, Mr. J.W. Borchis of the Board of Public Works issued a permit authorizing the chief to call on the Chattanooga authorities for assistance. Accordingly, a telephone message soon passed over the wire from Knoxville to Chattanooga, and the request for assistance met a responsive yes from the people at the foot of Lookout Mountain. Major Huger of the Southern Railway also placed an engine, flat car, and coach at the disposal of the Chattanooga firemen, and with all possible haste, the fire apparatus was placed on the flat car, the firemen in the coach, and these, drawn by the mighty engine guided by the hand of Engineer Johnson, were soon en route to the scene of conflagration. It seemed that assistance had come from heaven itself, for the mighty iron horse, together with its precious load of human and material freight, seemed to become inspired. The distance of 111 miles from Chattanooga to Knoxville was covered in 107 minutes, allowing a stop of four minutes at a watering station for the iron monster to quench its thirst. It was given right-of-way over all trains, both freight and passenger, and those who were passengers on the Lightning Express state that the experience incidental to this trip was one most thrilling. The populace of the various towns along the route had learned of the coming of the special and were assembled at the various stations in great numbers to witness its speeding by. Once in Knoxville, however, more than half the battle was accomplished, 
and the horses of the local department were in waiting at the railroad station to draw the mighty engine and the chemical extinguisher to the scene where the fire was raging so intensely. In another five minutes, it being near 7.30 o'clock, the fire engine was vigorously pumping from a water plug at the corner of Market Square and Union Streets and was supplying a heavy pressure to two lines of hose throwing streams of water into the burning debris. The Chattanooga men were stationed at the Woodruff Building and did valiant service there for four hours, never flinching from duty, and their conduct was sufficient to augment the already willing and energetic spirit to fight the fire that was entertained by the local heroes. The Knoxville Trolley and Electric Companies were among the various corporations to suffer considerable damage from the fire. The falling walls of the various buildings brought down with them electric wires of both trolley and light companies, and these wires were completely buried beneath the debris. With characteristic enterprise, Mr. C.C. Howell, who is charge of both companies, put a force of men to work unearthing his wires and tracks, and by 10 o'clock had the trolley wire up it having been strung on new poles and the track of the street railway in such condition as to make transportation possible. The various lines of hose, however, were strung across the street and it was impossible to resume transportation until late in the day. While this work was being done on the street railway, another force of linemen were engaged in erecting poles and stringing wires of the electric light company. The day service was off until the afternoon at 3 o'clock, by which time the broken lines had been sufficiently repaired to admit the resumption of business at the powerhouse. In this burned district were many of the finest buildings in the city of Knoxville, and on account of this fact, the losses doubly deplored. With a single exception, every building in the block had been erected within the last 12 years. All were modern buildings, both in appointments and architectural beauty. The exception referred is that of the Woodruff Hardware House, and even this building underwent a remodeling two years ago. Hotel Knox was originally built for a mercantile establishment, it being the most extensive business affair in Knoxville. About six years ago, the firm dissolved, and the building was then occupied at various times by other firms now well known in the city. In the fall of 1895, Colonel McNulty, the owner of the property, conceived the idea of converting it into a hostelry and accordingly gave notice to his tenants to vacate on January 1896. The building having been vacated, the work at once began and it was soon transformed into a hotel of the dollar-a-day type. Colonel McNulty spent at least $50,000 in perfecting the building and its furnishings, though its construction was of a decidedly cheap nature. It was, however, quite handsomely furnished for a house of its caliber. Had the construction been of a more substantial nature, it is believed that the building would not have proven such a fire trap and that there would have been a chance at least to save it and the adjoining property from such terrible destruction. The expression heard upon the streets yesterday was, I told you so. Many citizens who are affected by the catastrophe strongly denounced the policy of the City Council and the Board of Public Works in erecting a new market house and appropriating $5,000 for the centennial, but to refuse adequate means for sustaining a first-class fire department, 
which would have secured for Knoxville the safety of its buildings and other manifold interests. In last Tuesday's journal appeared an article which called attention to the fact that the Board of Public Works had failed to enforce the escape ordinance. The ordinance provides that a fire escape be erected on every building over two stories in height, but the members of the board have seen fit to ignore this ordinance. The members of the board consider that a great number of the owners of buildings who had not provided the adequate means of escape were exempt on account of the fact that no one slept in the buildings and that they were not lodging houses. During the day, the Western Union's white-winged force were on a hustle that made them dizzy. By 3 o'clock, nearly 300 messages relative to the fire had been handled, most passing between home or general offices of insurance companies and their local agents. The devastated appearance of Gay Street property will not long exist as many of the buildings are to be rebuilt, and that at a very early date. A bit of enterprise that is suggestive of the characteristic business spirit and tenacious purpose to succeed was exhibited by Mr. M. L. Ross. As soon as he observed that the building was to be consumed by the greedy flames, he at once hunted up architect Bauman and directed him to prepare plans for a new building, and that at once. Mr. Ross stated that he proposed to have one of the most imposing structures on Gay Street. It will be four stories high with basement and will have a handsome brick and stone front. The building will be modern in all its appointments and will be constructed in accordance with the latest and best business block theories. The building will probably cost $20,000. It is generally conceded that Briscoe Brothers and Company is the firm suffering the greatest loss. They have, however, determined to rebuild at once and to fill their new house with a high-class stock of goods such as they are wont to carry. Mr. Daniel Briscoe, senior member of the firm, will leave today for New York to lay in a mammoth supply of goods. How's that for Knoxville grit? It has been but seven years since the Briscoe firm lost $300,000 by the collapse of their building on Commerce Street. This was a total loss, there being not a dollar of insurance. Like a white-plumed phoenix, however, the firm rallied from this terrible financial disaster, which to many would have been forever fatal. With characteristic energy and hustle, the gentlemen of the firm began to rebuild their business and in a short time had it again in the lead. The gentlemen composing the firm are already determined to try again and again wage to the front of the line of trade in which they are engaged. The Sturkey Brothers' loss will be about $35,000. Their stock was valued at that figure and was insured for $15,000. The building was owned by Colonel Charles McGee and was insured for $10,000. In their efforts to save some of their property, 12 suits of furniture together with a number of minor articles were snatched from the flames. They had a large stock of new goods bought, some of which they were notified by the railroad company yesterday morning had arrived. They will open up in the library building from which they moved several years ago. The Sturkey boys will put in a full line of furniture at an early date and will soon be sailing on smooth again. Their energy reflects no little credit upon them by reason of the fact that they are yet young men and have been long in business. In so much as the water supply of this city is concerned, Knoxville is all right. 
W.H. Haig, when informed of the magnitude of the fire and the amount of water that was being used by the firemen in their efforts to extinguish the flames, ordered the pumps at the river station to be turned on at full force, and as a result, water was pumped into the reservoir at a rate of 4,500,000 gallons every 24 hours. Owing to the prompt action of those in charge, the reservoir, which was full when the fire commenced, was in the same condition when the fire was extinguished. It may well be said that in no city in the South is there a better supply of water than there is in the city of Knoxville. The fire of yesterday morning is a greater calamity to this city than most people imagine. The finest business block in the city has been destroyed by fire, but this is not all. Men who are depending on their weekly wages to support their families are thrown out of employment, and it is upon them that the greatest hardship falls. No doubt all of the buildings will be rebuilt, but in the meantime, what will those who have been thrown out of employment do to earn a living? Those number nearly 300. While most of them will secure their positions again, not being able to work will bring hardship to many families. So this is Knox County historian Steve Cotton. In 1897, um, Knoxville was really just beginning to, to become a real city at the time of the fire. And, uh, the high-rise district had developed along Gay Street. So this was the you know pride and joy of the new city with all the big retail, wholesale business establishments. And the fire that, that took place in 1897 destroyed two blocks, I think, of that, of that street and a million dollars worth of real estate. Mm-hmm. And the uh, city was, was overwhelmed, fascinated. There was a real fear that the whole uh, downtown might burn if, if weather conditions, if the winds changed and the weather had been different, it could have destroyed a lot more of the city. But um, there was a I mean, if you read the papers, you know, they immediately talked about the insurance and the, and the rebuilding that was going to take place and where everybody relocated because all of the businesses that were core businesses had to set up some new location as a temporary home. So the next day they're running little locations of where people have gone. I think I remember that I've heard Bud Albers say that his grandfather had to relocate the, the drug company materials out of that building to save them and that they took them over to... Uh, to the churchyard of uh, Second Presbyterian Church in the 1897 fire, which was about a block away, and that he left his son, who's a boy, there to watch <laughs> all the, the drugs and the things from the drugstore <laughs> just to keep him safe from the fire. I think they'd carried him over there. Um, there was an, an awful lot of activity and, and drama right there on the street at the time, and they were wondering how many people were dead. That was the other thing. Uh, there were all kinds of stories. It looked like maybe three of the men in the hotel died and when all of the commotion settled down. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to look at how recently Knoxville at that point had developed a, a paid fire department. There, we had had a volunteer fire department as far back as at least the 1820s with um, buckets and old-fashioned pumping machine, hand-pumping machines. And it was in 1885, which is just 12 years before this big fire that Knoxville got a paid department with better equipment that could fight a fire. And really, it was um, it was really the fear of 
fires in these kinds of high-rise buildings because they didn't have ladder equipment and they didn't have, you know, really good equipment to fight a fire in a four or five-story building. And uh, that was an impetus to get the uh, a real fire department started. Uh, there were other notable fires in the time frame, but really this was the by far the biggest fire. It was in um, in 1904 that the same block was hit with another fire right in the center of the block, and that was when the uh, fire chief, Captain Maxey, and one of the men were killed fighting that fire. And so that's how we got that monument of the firemen uh, that's moved around downtown that's currently in front of fire hall number one. So it was a monument to the two men who died in fighting that fire. So we had two really big fires in that same block. Then we had the fire that burned Lossie McGee Library down the street to the north in 1904. And that was a pretty major fire. And then the the other one that's particularly noteworthy in downtown was the Imperial Hotel fire in 1916. And it was, um, had been built around a house. It was kind of a rabbit warren of a building, and when it burned, it was uh, was a really disastrous fire. And so that inspired a group of businessmen to build a brand-new fireproof hotel, which is when we got the Farragut Hotel in 1917. But the uh, the drama of the 1897 fire kind of dwarfs any and all other <laughs> events in Knoxville history in terms of firefighting and disasters. They describe the city as looking like uh, Atlanta, or that part of the city is looking like Atlanta right after the burning of Atlanta. The bank was described as being right next door and a little lower down so that people could mm -hmm. jump onto the roof. How did the bank not get included in the list of buildings burned? Did it somehow survive? Uh, I don't know. The fire stopped both times with the uh, what's now, this is the building where Arby's is located now, right there on the south side of the fire. And um, the 1897 photographs show pretty clearly that all of the buildings collapsed. Mm -hmm. uh, the fire was such a, had such heat that the structures all came down and there were just skeletons of walls in, the, you know, in those blocks. In 1904, I think the exterior walls may have survived. But all of the buildings were full of flammables. And so when they started, you know, when the fire got going, it not only had the wooden structure, but all kinds of flammable goods inside that would, uh, would go up. You know, everything mm -hmm. contributed to a really, really hot fire. Of course, places like Woodruff's not only had, they had ammunition, guns, dynamite, I mean, <laughs> all kinds of <laughs> explosives in there. That must have been pretty dramatic. Jim Thompson actually started his career, according to tradition and legend, with his photographs of the Gay Street Fire. He was a very young man, 1897, he would have been about 16 or 17 years old, and he got a camera set up and took photographs of, the, of all of the conflagration. And those were put in, in those days, the way to display something was you put whatever art or whatever you want to display in shop windows. And he put those photographs of the fire that he printed in shop windows, and that was sort of his leg up to, to beginning a career in photography, which he actually started in 1902, I believe it was. Well, I can tell the listeners that there is a copy of a photograph of this fire hanging on the second floor of the downtown grill and brewery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that reproduced from the famous photos that were made right after the fire. Of their, um, Thompson's photos were supposed to be 
there's like a whole set and I've never seen the, an entire set of photographs you know of the, of the fire I don't know what happened to those but uh, there are a few individual photographs and they usually just concentrate on billowing smoke in the early part of the fire with lots of people in the foreground <laughs> and at the end of the fire it's just all the a view from up high looking down at all the buildings that have collapsed just pieces of walls standing uh, taken from the north looking to the south but it was a it was a major event in, in Knoxville history and it was at a time when Knoxville's population was really just taking off and it was a time of really solid economic growth. The 1893 depression had sort of cooled the economy off, <laughs> very definitely cooled the economy off, and the city was coming out of that. There was lots of building going on, and it really disrupted the life, economic life of the city to have all these major businesses put out of business even for a relatively short period of time. They, they had rebuilt the buildings within 12 to 16 months and the businesses had shifted around and relocated and got new equipment and most everybody had insurance although they probably all suffered some loss but they weren't you know without insurance so the city bounced back and that was the thing that they were that was a big selling point with the boosterism of the of the time was that you know within a couple of years the city was completely back to where it had been before and you know moving right on ahead so <laughs> they were very proud of the recovery the mm -hmm. quick recovery. And uh, were the city fathers successful in pushing stronger ordinances about shared walls and um, that the, fire escapes? They began to pay more attention to, to that and I think making sure that fire equipment was good. Well, thank you very much, Steve. You're welcome. You've been listening to Historic Knoxville News, a podcast of the Knox County Public Library. The podcast archives are available from our website at knoxlive.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G. On the podcast page, you can read article transcripts and find links to library resources related to the subject. You can leave your comments on each episode and support the podcast by linking to it with the handy share button. This work is published under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License Copyright 2008 by Knox County Public Library. The music was performed by Music Therapy, and our reader was Robbie Griffith. I'm Melissa Brenneman. Join us again for another journey into Knoxville's past.